racism is easy. That's a soundbite. Racist ideas are easy. Like they're whatever, criminals, whatever. And they're foreigners. They know they can't be here. Like that, the hate is, is a soundbite. Hate is easy, mm -hmm. right? But actually explaining how systemic racism and sexism <laughs> works, that's not a soundbite. And it's so much harder to represent. You're listening to Strong Asian Lead, a podcast platform for Asians across the diaspora to share their stories about what it means to be an Asian creative in the entertainment industry. Throughout this podcast, you'll hear me and my guests have deep discussions about the industry, the paths they forged, and their unique experiences on and off the film set. My name is David Masami Mori. I'm an entrepreneur, career coach, screenwriter, and activist. But I'm not going to introduce myself too much, because this podcast is not about me. It's about you, Asian Hollywood. What I will say is that it's been a real honor serving the community and holding conversations on Clubhouse. It seems like there's so much to be talked about. And there's a great deal of discussion to be had. I constantly get emails and DMs thanking me for holding these spaces. But it's so difficult for me to accept compliments and gratitude. Because I feel like this is how I can show up for my community and ask the hard questions. It's my duty to serve the greater collective, not just myself as a screenwriter. I have my personal dreams and stories I want to share. But I think it's just as important for me to play my part in moving the needle in the Asian community. I am not on this earth for the light and fun conversations. I'm here for the deep discussions that need to be had. Some may see me as a leader, but I'm just here to start the conversations to get the ball rolling. I'm here to listen, learn, and take actions on the issues. So right now, I'm taking a moment to thank you, the audience, for tuning in to this podcast, joining our clubhouse, and being the change this industry needs. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk briefly about our crowdfunding campaign. We need to raise $50,000 to support our current efforts, expand our team, and reach the audience we need. You can find more about our crowdfunding campaign at strongagentlead.com slash crowdfunding. We want to continue serving the community and building strong coalition together. But as we expand and continue to build, I can't do it alone. And our team also needs to eat and pay for the roof over their head. So please, consider donating to our campaign. And with that being said, I am pleased to introduce Nancy Wong Yoon. Nancy is a scholar and author of the book, Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. If you haven't read Nancy's book yet, I highly recommend you do so ASAP, especially if you're an actor. Nancy did an extraordinary study on Hollywood's structural racism within the acting world and found many great insights into the industry, breaking down data, discrimination laws, and asking multiple communities of color about their experiences in casting brought out amazing results. I won't go on too long about the book in this intro but I definitely see her work as a guiding academic look at the racial inequalities of Hollywood. And it was a true pleasure to talk with Nancy. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Nancy Wong Yoon. We'll get started in, in a little bit. We've been through this whole pandemic. We've gone through so much in life right now. Obviously, the shootings are terrible. I saw your article that came through after Atlanta. How are you feeling? And how are you doing after a couple of weeks now? And we've even seen new mass shootings today. And how are you uh, taking care of yourself? How are you, how are you practicing self-care? So this morning, I did some self-care by just cutting fruit. It feels so Asian to cut <laughs> fruit, although I made a fruit salad, which is not very Asian. Found it very meditative because a lot of times I'm cutting things or making food and it's just a rush, but I decided yeah. to just take my time and, and taste the fruit as I was cutting it and just enjoying making, preparing and eating and the sensory experience of food. Cause that's something I think very Asian. I think hmm. whenever I post something on Twitter, send me your favorite Asian food. And it really represents, I think what Asian America is. I think we have so much excellence. We have so much appeal, 
And we also very much enjoy the diversity within our community. And, and yet it feels there's overlaps, right? Like we, we love noodles, we love rice, we love spices. And so all that I think was something that I did in a meditative way this morning. I think it's hard. We're still living in a pandemic. It's really hard to continue surviving in the midst of fear, in the midst of grief, in the midst of anger and rage, and also just confusion. I think it's like, what do we do in this moment? And I know that as a scholar, I've had to step in and speak about racism and sexism in ways that I usually do in the classroom, but all of a sudden I'm doing it on TV or on radio. It feels like really positive in that people are understanding what anti-Asian racism and sexism and misogyny looks like, but it also feels horrible that it had to take something like hate crimes to have our country finally listen to us and want to hear what we have to say about the experiences of growing up in a racist society as an Asian American. Yeah. And in a moment that we just want to heal, but we have to like step up and it's, we have to say something, feel like you have to say something, especially if people are asking you, especially someone like yourself, like sometimes you just want that breath just to be silent and not. Yeah. I had to write, I was asked to write a piece the day after it happened the night. I think it was a Monday night. And then that Tuesday I was asked to write something and they gave me one day to do it. <laughs> And so I basically processed my feelings through the article, but I didn't really process my feelings. Maybe I processed my thoughts right mm. through the article. And then it was a barrage of CBS and NPR and several NPR. I didn't know how many different NPR shows there were <laughs> until <Yeah>. this happened. <laughs> And choose feeling, okay, which one do I choose? I can't do them all. There were like at least several that I had to say no to only because it wasn't just a matter of time, but it was really a matter of emotional capacity. I didn't know how to do it without, I really had an emotional breakdown actually the weekend and I still had appearances the next week. So it's, it was incredibly hard. And the only reason I stepped up was I felt like this was the only thing I could do in a pandemic time is to use my voice and use my words through writing and to educate the public about something that I feel like everybody should know, not just Asian Americans. We should understand how racism functions, not just in terms of overt words or messages, but actually subconscious biases that people aren't aware of, the kind of microaggressions that we get that aren't jokes, but really add up. So all these things that we experience on a regular basis, the average person takes for granted and, and doesn't even consider to be problematic. Like I think, especially in terms of anti-Asian misogyny, I think people think of Asian women as attractive and the fetishization as positive. So what's wrong with being attractive? But they don't understand how it quickly turns into violence and, mm -hmm. and unwanted attention and also always racist. Like I wrote in one of my articles, it's really hard to separate out racism and sexism whenever I get cat called on the streets or just any kind of road rage because I'm in the LA area. It's always connected. I didn't realize how clueless America was about all this <laughs> until I saw yeah. the police actually say that it wasn't racist because oh, the murderer called it, said it was just a, a sexual addiction and they took his word at it. I think I felt so enraged that I was like, well, I have to go out and tell everybody why this is racist. 
and why we need to not take his word for it. And also, I think all these Asian American women had to basically say and list all the horrible things that we are told on a regular basis growing up here in the United States. It was very personal. I was saying this stuff. I was saying this on All Things Considered. I had a conversation (laughs) with the amazing Elsa Chang, and we were both talking about all the things that, you know, we've been called. It felt like a conversation between, you know, two Asian American women and friends, even though I just met her. I look back, I'm like, wow, I just, I guess I was just so mad and I didn't care, but it was really personal and really, it made me very vulnerable and I got hate mail for it for sure. And Yeah, I know. So it's like, I'm already used to that because I speak on Hollywood and racism and there's always some fandom that's mad at me at all times. And as an Asian woman, I get, I get rape threats and all sorts of scary misogynistic problems that a lot of almost every woman of color I know that's at all online and and speaking out, they always get on someone like Kimmy Yam, who's a a journalist for NBC News, she mm-hmm. gets 45 plus hate mails a day. This is on the regular. And she's, I don't even think she's 30. She's so young. And she's, this is her life just being a journalist, right? Who is writing pretty objective stuff. There's always takes, right? But she's not saying anything that I've ever read that was totally off. It was, she's very brave in speaking up. And so she's just one of many. I can't imagine being you know, a woman in this time. I know women go through so much and just the back channels. It's not even the public stuff. It's all the private DMs and emails and it's awful. And I, I wish I could help stop that. <laughs> all I can do is just try to inform people not to do that. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I really, I just uh, admire the strength of women to, to have to handle all that uh, as a privileged Asian man, I just don't. And so I can't even imagine how much it, that's exhausting and, and tolling on just the emotional and mental health. And it's awful. Yeah. There's no one Asian American. So I would love to know how you personally identify. So I identify politically, first of all, as Asian American, because as, as you may or may not know, your listeners, that it was a political identity that came out of the civil rights movement. And it was at, I was in a think of San Francisco State. Okay, now, I'm, now my memory is it's either San Jose State or San Francisco State, where it was Japanese, Chinese and Filipino students who came up with the term Asian American as a way to have coalition in order to have a more solidified voice in order to protest the kind of racism that Asian Americans receive. And so I definitely identify as Asian American politically, but I guess ethnically, I identify now as Taiwanese American. I didn't always grow up identifying Taiwanese American. And I think that people have different ideas. I've even talked to, I just identified myself to somebody who I assume was Taiwanese American and they were like challenging me on it because I don't speak Taiwanese American and, or I don't speak Taiwanese. My family came, immigrated to Taiwan from China. And so in, in Taiwan, we were always called Waisaren, which means outside province people <laughs> because we were immigrants. My family were immigrants from, from China to Taiwan during the communist um, revolution. I actually went to Taiwan right before COVID kind of hit. I was there December slash January of 2020. And I just started to, I actually started to interview relatives who had come during that same time and they identified as Taiwanese. I talked to a, a taxi driver who was Taiwan, who identifies Taiwanese, who I think, you know, spoke Taiwanese fluently. And I asked him, do you think 
I can identify as Taiwanese, even though I don't speak Taiwanese and I just, I was born here, but that's it. And he's, of course you can. He gave me like, like the biggest encouragement. And I think he had a lot of Taiwanese pride. And of course, everybody should just identify as Taiwanese. But it took me a long time to get here because I think because of my own family and also feeling like literally like outside, even though it's the only country I know besides the United States, because I was born there. I came when I was five. And so I don't know China at all. And I do support Taiwan and, and the Taiwanese people. So in the last year, I've been saying Taiwanese American. But before then, I probably would have said Chinese American. So that's where I am. But it is this is a child's understanding, right, of identity through a lens of considering what it means as an adult. But I definitely feel Asian American because I grew up in Cerritos, California, which is, I mean, I went to a school that was, I think, 80 some percent Asian American. And it was truly mm. Asian America because it was all over. Like we had South, Southeast Asian, East Asian. And I had friends from every part of almost, you know, every major part of Asia. I realized it's so formative, right? Where I really feel like I grew up in Asian America. And so that's why I, I, it's not just political, but it's also cultural. I definitely feel more kinship with other Asian Americans, including South and Southeast Asian Americans in ways that I think maybe people who didn't grow up in that situation might, but I, I definitely feel very at ease with anybody from the Asian subcontinent. I feel very similar that way. Why the change from Chinese to Taiwanese? What was that pivot point? Because I don't even know China. Mm. I was born in Taiwan. All my memories of an Asian country is situated in Taiwan. And my food tastes skew Taiwanese, which is Taiwan. Taiwan was voted, I think, one year CNN, like the best food in the world because mm. it's, it has a, a lot of fusion. Like I think the Portuguese were there at one point. They have sausages. They have Shanghainese, like all the ba all the all the soup dumplings. That's all that's from Shanghai. But I think the whole Ding Tai Fung phenomenon that's coming out of Taipei, Taiwan, and and just all the street foods, like night market. Like I grew up going to night markets. All the best imported foods that that I think define Asian America in a lot of ways, East Asian America, is from Taiwan. And that's again, that's like a little kid. Like this is me growing up eating this food and also watching the TV and. And all that stuff. And I think that I, culturally, I identify most with Taiwanese culture outside of you know, an American culture is very diverse. I think boba is officially American culture now. And so <laughs> I think that, yeah. And also I support Taiwan. I support the democracy. I, I want to say that I support like independence, but I don't really know what that means because unfortunately I grew up in the United States. I have no knowledge of Asian history besides what I could read as, as an adult. And I didn't study East Asia so my knowledge is maybe it's better than the average person, but I still feel like I don't know enough about the history to definitively say where I stand politically because I don't live there. But I definitely and I'm in support of non-colonialist, non-imperialist. <laughs> and I understand that when, when the Chinese immigrants came during the Communist Revolution, there was a lot of, I think, subjecting Taiwanese people to powers that were not welcome. I don't have that very strong Taiwanese nationalism that a lot of my friends who come from the previous generation, the, the ones that came prior to the, the Chinese. And this is like history that, again, I'm speaking, I feel like I'm like a middle schooler talking about Asia, <laughs> in East Asia, but, but this is what I was able to glean, like all the while growing up. And also, so I say grow up because I would go to Taiwan every summer from oh. after immigrating here, I was five 
because I was raised by my grandmother and I would stay with her every summer until I was a teenager. So I feel like I saw the changes in Taiwan actually through television. I remember when I was growing up, it was only Mandarin. And then as the years went by, the channels would have different dialects. Mm. And I knew, I think that something was changing in terms of power, that there was more representation. And I saw it through TV. This is why I study TV and yeah. film, right? Because you can changing. learn so much about right. a country's culture and even politics and identity through the way that it's represented. Yeah, and I, I need to know, I need to learn and study up more about Taiwan and just what's going on because there's, there's so much to learn about Asian culture in general. I'm still learning about Japan, to learn about other cultures, what they're doing, their political beliefs, uh, the culture in itself, it's so different. So yeah, yeah it's and cool Taiwanese, to be there. And Taiwanese has a lot of intersections with Japanese culture because it was mm. you know, occupied by, by Japan. And my Taiwanese friends, their parents growing up, they spoke fluent Japanese. And they wow. would make these, <laughs> I still remember they would make these like rolls with like dried pork inside. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, and I've never <laughs> seen this or I've actually, there, there are versions of this, but not like with seaweed and everything. I still remember seeing that. And again, it's, I, I remember things about culture through food <laughs> and through yeah. television yeah. as a child. This is what you remember. And I just saw the fusion there. And yeah. And so Japan is part of Japanese food and culture. Is there's a lot of Japanese architecture in, in Taiwan. Like when mm -hmm. I went to their modern art museum and also they have lots of homes that are modeled after Japanese homes. And so it's the, the country is, is just so interesting. Same thing with Korea and Japan. There are a lot of overlaps because of colonization and war. And there's so much pain in all that. But, yeah. then there's, but then you see the kind of aftermath in terms of how the cultures have intermixed. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing that we don't always think about is how they're also mixed at certain places even within the country but i love the fusion of food and uh, the way, food i think like food migration how food moves and travels and changes i think that's just fascinating so what got you into the entertainment industry you saw tv in taiwan change what got you like really interested about going in depth into this field i was an immigrant at a very young age and i was a latchkey kid so i just grew up watching tv like every day after school and learned about what the United States, I think, thinks of itself. I don't want to say that I learned what the United States was through television, but it certainly was very white and looked nothing like the kind of friends that I had growing up in Southern California. So I learned a lot about representation and, and how the United States conceptualizes and identifies itself through its television and then later on. I watched a lot of films. I also worked at Blockbuster. I dated someone who worked at Edwards Theater. Wow. So I just consumed so much. It's funny because um, I didn't go to film school, but I certainly became a cinephile through through those five free rentals I got as, a, as an employee of Blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, I love television and film growing up. And, and I think it was when I entered college and became an English major that I started to critique film and television as discourse and find really break down what does this mean when you know southern things set in southern california don't include anyone that looks like me or my friends so mm -hmm. i think that three's company was a big show that my dad watched and i was very little and i would watch with him and that was set in like santa monica in los angeles area and it was it was so white it was so white even at that time it wasn't white the like the demographics weren't what was seen on screen but even to this day like now that i research film and television the the way that cities are represented 
it's still a skewed viewpoint. We need that in cinema and TV. If we're just consuming and just accepting that this is what the fictional reality is and thinking this is what America is, and we're not uh, discussing it, having the discord, looking at it, critiquing it and seeing how it affects society. I think it's that's the important part of like the responsibility of Hollywood to do that kind of thing and show a, a reality rather than a, a white gaze of, of what they think this, these cities are. And yeah, it's such valuable work. And in going to that, so being a sociologist in this field in, in cinema, which I don't, I don't even know if there's a lot of people in this the category of, of cinema, but as a scholar and as a sociologist of cinema who studies the society in itself, Asian Americana, and, and looking at it through in a very unique lens, what got you into that particular part of it? And what's the most interesting aspect that you found? I think that as I break down and look at how cinema and television influences society, it's very difficult to have a one-to-one link, but mm-hmm. we know that psychological studies show that children's self-esteem, children of color, their self-esteem are, are completely affected by the hours of television that they watch. So there was a study of black boys and girls and white boys and girls, and it showed that with each additional hour of television watch, black boys and girls and white girls, their self-esteem went down, whereas white boys, their self-esteem went up. These kind of studies reveal the potential dangers of not seeing yourself or seeing yourself only as negative or inconsequential characters, that that absolutely affects a young person's self-esteem. Because we know that people and children are consuming so much media. Now we have so many choices. It's not just Hollywood, but also YouTube and, and just every screen possible, right? The phone, the laptop, the television, And so the kind of, sometimes it's, I think some studies show that it's 15 hours average, right? In terms of Mm -hmm. screen time, that includes social media, but we know there's videos that are shared and YouTube, as well as now we have every kind of streaming platform for every single (laughs) television channel, station, platform ever. So we're inundated with content And that content, so besides kind of self-esteem of people of color, we know that research shows that when you don't have contact with a certain group, so if, if I don't have contact with any Asians in real life, most of my perception and concepts and framing of that group will come from media. Even if I know media is fiction, even if I know what I'm watching is a story that, that isn't real, like I'm not, I'm letting it just go through my brain unfiltered because it's entertainment. You can relax. Right. You don't really think about anything. You just let it flow in uncritically. And of course, it's going to have an impact on what you think of that group. And so there is also research that shows that the way that we preserve, we, we can conceive of immigrants and Latinx groups that the because if we're watching Fox News, et cetera, news that, that frames them as dangerous, and of course we were getting it from the government at one point, that all that will have an impact on how we vote for, for immigrant rights or anti-immigrants. So there's been research that it's hard to show, again, the one-to-one link, but the likelihood that someone will have a skewed and biased viewpoint if they don't, ha- if they don't know anybody in real life is very high. And so the research, it's hard because we we consume media, but we also talk to people. We're in silos. 
there's there's a lot of influences on how on, on racism and bias. But I think the fact that we spend so much time in front of a screen, the fact that we know that social media, that Facebook was right showing only certain content. Still now, I think I, I just get certain content based on my political preferences. The whole advent of fake news, and there is fake news, and then there's dismissal of real news as fake news, that the me- media is just... If, if we're not studying media, if we're not thinking about media, then we are missing a huge part of how society functions and the influences on everyday people. Yeah. I see it as like when we're kids, we have the education system, we're in school and we're doing something and that's where we're getting a lot of our information. But as we grow older, we turn on the TV, like we're consuming that now we're seeing that as information. And if it's not just cartoons, we're seeing real people even though they're actors, we, we know they're actors, but because we feel so emotionally attached to these characters that they become real, they become like family with us, especially like TV, You're like sitting with their family for a long time. And you feel like, no, these characters I can join with. I want them to have them for dinner. You might even see some people see characters as heroes. Some people see Indiana Jones as hero. Like <laughs> I'm watching Pokemon right now. And I looked at how many episodes at times 20 minutes. And I was like, oh, season two is 18 hours. <laughs> and knowing there's 25 seasons, like I'm only going to do these first two seasons, <laughs> but that's so much con- consuming in there. And then as we go to adults, we're not going to the education system anymore. We're almost only watching TV. What we're consuming on YouTube and TikTok that's what we're going to get, especially with more screen time, more apps coming through. Who knows? It's a cyclical issue in itself. So I'm glad we're having discussions about what that means to our psychology and to our kids too, especially with kids having iPads and iPhones. So it's just going to be, that's going to be a new world. Um, that, world is, that world's <laughs> been here for a while. And yeah, and I think that sound bites, people, you talk about TikTok where attention spans are shorter. And it's hard to explain racism and sexism and conflict and all that in a sound bite. It's, racism is easy. That's a sound bite. <laughs> Racist ideas are easy. Like they're whatever, criminals, whatever. And they're foreigners. They know they can't be here. Like that, the hate is, is a sound bite. Hate is easy, mm-hmm. right? But actually explaining how systemic racism and sexism works that's not a soundbite and it's so much harder to represent i think that's why actually we need better narrative um, storytelling that actually dissects this because i think that to have news coverage or even maybe podcasts can do it but i think people are only listening to what they want to listen so minds and hearts are not being changed unless they are watching unless the avengers start being anti-racist right and i think that like the most recent falcon and winter soldier they are actually representing some microaggressions and and they're dealing with some of that and i applaud disney for for taking that on but we need more of that we need ways of conveying inequality <laughs> in packaged in an entertaining way so that people will develop empathy for mm-hmm. those who are being continuously victimized rather than telling people don't want to hear because they just start again labeling it as fake news or whatever or propaganda or liberal whatever i, I don't even know all the things i try to i try to avoid yeah. all, the, all the horrible <laughs> things that they say about progressive messaging but i think that it's storytelling that is actually going to be the key and that's why we need more representation. People don't like to be told something. They will, and, and at the end of the day, it's about their feelings. That's that's what really matters to a lot of people. Because at the end of the day, that's that's how they personally feel. So if they can get to their feelings really quick with this just hate, and it's just like it's so easy to pick on that emotion and pluck that guitar string. But um, really learning something and being told it, no one wants their mother to tell them something or the teacher to tell them something and just like, learn this. Like it's just so direct. You got to make them 
feel something. I think that's why storytelling is just valuable in itself because then you're showing them through taking them on an emotional journey and saying, hey, this is what people of color feel. And can you empathize with that? That I, We would love that. Yeah, and I think so. that if they see leads and they see leads where their stories are compelling and they can actually step into their shoes without realizing that they're doing that, I think that that would be very effective. It's We need Asian leads to be so cool that you want to become like them, or you want to understand that they're human, that they're not foreigners, that they're not, or even if they are, we can actually respect someone from another country rather than see them as threats. Right. So changing that narrative of the threatening foreigner and change in the narrative that all Asians must not be from here. <laughs> like those kind of stereotypes that Hollywood has banked on for so long that it's become part of the culture. And I think that you know, all of us have grown up with that in Asian American as Asian Americans. And I think that to try to tell all sorts of Asian American stories that encompass not just the immigrant experience, but someone like you, Japanese Americans, especially people who have been here several generations. And there's Chinese Americans who have been here since yeah. since the railroads and, and Filipino Americans in the South. And, and, and we have Hmongs in, in the Midwest, in Minnesota, right? So we right. have so many stories that we've I think have one, maybe one telling of, maybe on one television show, but we're not seeing them. It's full glory. And who's telling those stories too? That's part of it. Right. The Clint Eastwood story about the Hmong community. That's not exactly what we're asking for. We're asking for better representation. Yeah. I want to get into your book, Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism, because I've been reading it. It's like my Bible right now. It's so packed with information studies, testimonials, statistics. What inspired you to write this book? And, and how did you come up with this study? So when I started to think about how to approach media as a sociologist, I, I was interested in how the industry worked. And I wanted to hear from the actors themselves. And so a lot of the, I interviewed a hundred actors actually, but I also interviewed not just actors of color. So I interviewed Asian American, African American, Latinx, but I also interviewed white actors because as a sociologist, we like to have comparisons. We like to say, okay, because it's, if I only interview actors of color and they tell me that there's racism, then people could say it's just white actors also experience barriers. But I did interview white actors and I asked them all the same questions. So I kept them standard. I actually never asked about racism. I had to come out from their interviews. And so white actors did not experience, they flat, they just plainly did not experience racism. It's not like it's so easy to become a star, but they did not experience the barriers and certainly not the kind of things that happen in audition rooms, casting places where they were asked to be more black or be more Asian or do it with an accent or do it more spicy. All these kind of racialized expectations, like white actors did not receive those and they weren't typecast racially. They weren't, they could, the character actors could play a whole variation of different kinds of roles. Whereas Asian, Black, Latinx, they were usually typecast as one type of role, right? So the limitations was absolutely, there was divisions along racial lines. And so I really felt like, I really felt, yeah, that these stories were important, so important, because it's one thing for people to 
talk about like representation, but to hear straight from actors who are actually experiencing what we experience in everyday life that people color BIPOC experience in everyday life, because we're stereotyped wherever we go, right? The anti-Asian hate crimes are absolutely stereotypes that are imposed on Asian Americans who are just minding their own business, going on the subway, walking to church. And so I was really interested. I became really interested in how actors experienced it. And a lot of the actors of color, actually, one thing that I found was really interesting was that they felt this racial burden to represent their groups. Like that was something that was unique to actors of color. They all understood. They didn't read the the research that I just shared with you, but they all understood that their representation, that their image has an impact on how people in their groups would be perceived. They would do all sorts of interesting things behind the scene. They would actually, so you don't know what happens behind the scenes when you see the final image, but there were actors who were asking, who were changing scripts, rewriting their dialogue. So it doesn't sound so stereotyped, right? Like uh, one black woman actually rewrote all the, like the slang and the kind of ain'ts to aren'ts, right? She's, and then when she was challenged by the director, she's I'm a, I'm working at a bank. I wouldn't talk like this. So they would use rationales of authenticity rather than this is racist. <laughs> like they could never say that on set, even though that was what happened. And Asian American actors asking to change costumes. Like, I don't think I would be wearing this like kimono <laughs> working in the store, right? I would be working, if I'm working in like this store 24 seven or whatever, 18 hours a day, I would probably be wearing more comfortable clothes. And so they would there was all these challenges. And then also ideas that, oh, if I did this role, I can make it not racist. I will change it somehow. That's extra emotional work and just extra labor on the parts of actors of color having to do this work because they feel responsible, right? Even though they're not the ones that wrote it, they're not the ones that are directing it. They're not the costume department. (laughs) They're having to battle a lot of different people in the industry just to make sure that the final image isn't as racist as it was originally intended. So I I really loved seeing that and, and hearing about it and just being able to understand that Boy, people all over this country are, are are fighting back. And here are these actors of color who are really at the receiving end of all this, trying to do their best creatively and artistically to create alternate images within a system that is that is not for them. Yeah. And then being an actor of color and then having to do the jobs of other people because they're having to look at it and to do a better job. But at the same time, like other white actors don't have to do that because the default of like when your book says like the default's white. And so if your casting director is having to find somebody and just says open ethnicity, the generally the default is white. It's a problem to think have to push that against it, to have to look at it and say, why can't this be somebody else? Why can't this be a person of color? What does that look like? And then when that happens, an Asian person will have to go to the script and say, we have to change the little dialogue a little bit here because this is not right. Or this costume feels weird. It's not the same thing. It's just a whole extra labor that you know people have to go through. And so there's a lot to be done. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our, well, again, not a sponsor, just someone we want to uplift. CAAM, also known as CAM, the Center for Asian American Media is a nonprofit organization dedicated to presenting stories that convey the richness and diversity of Asian American experiences to the broadest audience possible. They do this by funding, producing, distributing, and exhibiting works in film, television, and digital media. For 40 years, CAM has exposed audiences to new voices and communities, advancing our collective understanding of the American experience through programs specifically designed to engage the Asian American community and the public at large. 
From May 13th to the 23rd of 2021, CamFest will bring you the best in Asian and Asian American stories through live virtual film screenings, on-demand screenings, and at San Francisco's only drive-in theater at the Fort Mason Flicks. Be sure to check out CamFest.com. That's C-A-A-M-F-E-S-T.com for more information. Now, back to my interview with Nancy Wong Yoon. What was the most shocking thing that you found through your research? I don't think that people know that actors have very little control over. I think we think of, we, we worship actors as celebrities, as stars, but they really, once they sign that contract, and like I had one African-American actor tell me that he had signed a contract, was flown to like probably Georgia or some, some like some part, some part of the country where there's tax, tax breaks and they're filming something. And he didn't know in the script that he would be hanging himself at the end of the story that was not told to him and he had already signed the contract and he was so devastated to have to play it and he was shaking he was upset and because he didn't want the lynching image to be disseminated to who knows where and so he had no no power to be able to say let's not do that because he's just a middle class journeyman working actor and most of the screen is populated by working actors. When we think of actors, we only think of the celebrities, but really a movie or a television show can't be made without all the other actors that are populating the screen. So with all the popular procedural shows, all the crime shows, there's always guest stars, right? Every single week, the people that are the victims, the people that are the criminals, right? Every week, it's a, it's a different cast. And so I think that people don't think about these actors and how they're not privileged. They're, they have to audition. They have to take what they're given. And so it's, I think, having this focus on those actors, I realized how powerless they were and how much work they had to put to even do anything to, to combat racism. And at the same time, they, they keep going. And I think the kind of motivation for all of us to keep going is to see that here are people who are working in industry where everything is stacked up against them. Even now, like one of the actors, he's Asian American on Twitter, and he's a working actor who has to audition. He says that he's still being asked to do an accent in every audition he goes to. Hello, post Crazy Rich Asians, you think that everything's going to get better because you see, you just see Stephen Young like getting a an Oscar nomination. Or But the truth is that there are still those stereotypes for the everyday actor of color. So Asian American actors are still dealing with the same problematic criteria that we've seen since the beginning of Hollywood. So I think that, yeah, that I was shocked just to know like what the average actor of color has to deal with. And, and yet I was also like, once I found out, I was like, why even do it? <laughs> you can barely get a job as an actor. And then on top of that, you have to you know, deal with all these isms. It's already crushing to be rejected, but then it's crushing to have to portray stereotypes. But you know, these are actors who really love their craft. They just want to be able to perform, right? They love being able to embody another you know, person. They love the art of it. A lot of them are trained actors. They're pursuing their passions. And they're, so many of them are activists, right? They're actually doing things to actually um, make society better through their representation. So I was, I was very inspired by them as well. I think one of the most shocking things was the whole accent, be more black, be more Asian, and how that's literally against the law of the 1964 Title VII of the Civil Rights Code. I'm like, whoa, how are we 
not seeing this as a law-breaking thing and how to change that. They say it's just freedom of speech, right? It's just freedom of speech. It just serves the storytelling. It's not that they're a racist. They're telling a story that's this way. So they get away with a lot. They can hire people based on race. They They don't have to abide by the laws that all other careers are have to abide by because they can use the first amendment of free speech as their excuse yeah i want to try to change that somehow somehow i love you know to take on the rooney rule uh, i think that's something that's helpful in how to start changing these things but yeah and just I, i'm interested in law and how that works but as a studio consultant and working with asian media and consulting studios and getting them to think a different way how do you work with studios how do you get them to see that this is something that they should be changing and working with for the betterment of not only the community and society but for themselves to look one look better as pr but two financially they're going to have more people watch the good stuff than not watch the stuff that we don't see ourselves in i think the studios obviously are interested in the bottom line and the fact that social media has been able to protest problematic uh, images, especially whitewashing Scarlett Johansson with Ghost in the Shell, that movie bombed partly because, and the producers admitted that was partly because of the protests and the social media uproar against whitewashing. And so they are concerned about that because now it's threatening their bottom line. But it also means that everyday people can get on social media and actually rant. And it actually, if it goes viral, it could be taken up by by the news media and make studios think twice. I've actually have consulted with studios who are interested in that. And this is based on my consultations, knowing that studios quote unquote care more because they don't want to they don't want protests to to threaten their box office success. And, and I think that some of them do also want to do right. And hopefully, especially with this idea that maybe they can reach Asian markets to actually tap that market. So why not have a more Asian representation, although it's not necessarily Asian American, in order to reach Asian markets. So then there's that money to be made there. And so I think there is more interest in telling Asian American stories for that purpose. But Hollywood hasn't been really good. Look at Mulan. It just didn't do that well because they didn't do it correctly. They try to check off certain boxes. Okay, we have a, uh, a star in China with Louis Fay and and we have Asian Americans and we have whatever costume research that the costumer said that she went to some European museum oh about Chinese culture. I think Barry's. they just, they don't quite, and, and they did have mm-hmm. Chinese consultants, but the problem when you hire consultants, they're not going to challenge you in that way. They're not going to say this is racist. I'm always going to be blunt because I'm a sociologist and I'm not consulting for my own gain. I'm consulting to hopefully change the way that race is whatever conceptualize it in a more authentic way that if you're going to represent Asian and Asian Americans, and it's not just Asian Americans. I think we have a pretty good group of critics of color. They're not as, you know, I think powerful as they could be, but we have people who are uh, very active on social media across groups that will come together and say, we do not want to see a whitewashed version of this, or we don't want to see a reconstructionist story about where the South you know, won the Civil War. Like We protested something that was absolutely something that nobody wants to see. And so I think we actually saved the money from producing, right? Producing trash essentially that no one's going to watch yeah i think they call it cancel culture but i think that it's actually it's 
audiences speaking up about things that we don't want to see, at least in, in the examples that I gave. And so that this is where we're trying to make a difference and not just, it's not cultural consultation to be PC, but these this is actually reflecting the, the reality of tastes and, and desires of a changing demographic. It's great that we have the ability to speak up on that and, and that they're listening. I remember that Civil War thing. I was like, no, that should not happen because that's going to be way too many questions. We only have a few minutes left, but uh, I would love to know what's the message you want future Asians in entertainment to take away? What's exciting to me is more and more Asian American storytellers. So filmmakers that are also telling their own story, like Lee Isaac Chung and Lulu Wong, who are telling their childhood stories and writing it and directing it. So the fact that this is happening, of course, through the independent film route, studios haven't jumped on it. But A24 is like you know, the distributor of, of all these Asian American independent films. And I think that for future Asian American actors to really seek out these kind of stories, to not just only to diversify, certainly you want to do the studio films whenever you can, but but it's these authentic stories that are really going to be the meaty, juicy roles that actually can get Oscar nominations. This is so exciting, right? To have these for the first time. I was just waiting. I remember when Crazy Rich Asians came out, I was like, I just want to see an Asian American drama that is going to get Oscar hoopla over that people are just going to like get excited and actually give us awards for telling stories that are going to touch the heart. And, and it's only been a few years that, that Minari has come out and, and really been able to, to showcase Asian American voices and acting ability. So I think that we just need more of these kind of stories. I really want to see stories coming out of the diaspora and the Asian American community, that all the different kinds of stories and stories that we haven't heard of yet. And there's so many that are left to tell so many because I feel like 90% of my childhood has not been told. So <laughs> like I'm writing a novel and I think now is the time to write more. If we think about Crazy Rich Asians and even like Little Fires Everywhere, there a lot of these are coming out of Asian American novelists who are, but Pachinko is going to be coming out. And so all these stories are emerging because Asian American novelists rock. <laughs> Their stories are amazing. I can't put these stories down. And they've actually always been around. Joella Club, right, was fantastic. And, and so I think that we all just need to tell our own stories. And I'm working on a speculative a novel that deals with, I haven't actually told, so you're going to be like the first person that I've told publicly <sighs> that there's going to be, there's going to be romance. There's going to be time travel. <laughs> that's what I, that's the kind of, that's the stuff that I love. I love that stuff. If I think about Asian culture, like I grew up in Taiwan. So this is going back to Taiwan again. I feel like alternate universe and time travel and time warps. That's very much in like the culture that I grew up in, because I think reincarnation, right, is very much a part of East Asian. And so the idea that you can have a different life or multiple lives, or you can go back and change your life, like all those ideas are are fresh here because because Western storytelling always revolves around the Messiah singular hero or, or a group of heroes. But it's not like the way that we I think we think about we think about storytelling in in, in Eastern culture, there's much more ensemble, there's interconnectedness and how our lives all impact one another. 
I think that kind of storytelling, I think we need that storytelling. We need more compassion and more empathy and more, more communal society ideas. Everybody out for themselves, that hasn't helped our society at all. Our society is in trouble. And I think we need alternate ways of telling stories. And I think that Asian American actors and Asian American creatives can absolutely make that happen. All comes down to the writing and who's telling that story. So all you creators out there, start writing, get that practice in, just start creating. Um, for our last few minutes, we do a, a closing rapid fire question. What are you cooking these days? I learned over the pandemic, while everybody else was making sourdough bread, I made scallion <laughs> pancake, which is actually harder than it looks. Oh, no okay, yeast cool. involved, but you do need to let it rise and then you need to roll it out and then you need to put the scallions in and then you need to roll it again and then you fry it. And it's delicious, <laughs> but it takes a little bit of work. Uh, what are you reading? I just finished Kindred. If you haven't read Kindred by Octavia Butler, it was 1979, but it feels like it's written today. So it's a speculative novel about time travel. And I read it and it was, it, it totally actually made me change my entire novel because I love the way that she did, she, she did time travel actually. And it's about, yeah, it's about someone in the 1970s traveling back to antebellum south and experiencing slavery as a as a modern african-american woman it's not for the faint-hearted it's not a it's not a rom-com novel at all <laughs> but i think i finished it in one morning it was that cool. compelling so that's wow. what i'm reading uh, and what are you watching i am watching this show called the irregulars on netflix it's got a a north irish chinese lead. It's about Sherlock Holmes times. It's completely paranormal with teens, but the lead is in Asian Irish. I don't even, I, I don't know if I've ever said this before, <laughs> Asian Irish actress. So she's completely new and she is like, she's also like, really badass <laughs> like really oh and the show's already been renewed for season two as i'm oh, looking great. up because Fantastic. she is and she's the lead okay so she's All the right. lead which is <laughs> i don't know why it's so amazing to me to even conceptualize that and it, so it's i think because it's i've never seen her before and mm -hmm. she's the lead it's, right. that's rare right where you, you when someone when asian after is the lead that they've been in tons of things that you've seen but here I've never seen this person before in my life. We're still in a moment where we're shocked when we see Asian leads because yeah. they're oh, still yeah. so rare. Her name is Thadia Graham. I hope I'm saying that. It could be Thadia. <laughs> I'm not familiar with the British yeah. name oh. or Irish name. Irish. Thadia Graham. And, and she's not, she defies stereotype because she's not ultra feminine. She's very, she's not a dragon lady. She's this kind of heart of this group where she's the strength She's also the compassion. She has a little silly romance because why not? It's teen stuff. But she's deep and she's complex in a paranormal kind of period piece. And I love, I love those steampunk things because I feel like there's not enough where people of color are mm. appearing in them because we yeah. want to be in fantasies too. It's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. That's what I'm watching and I'm really enjoying it because I need things where people are slaying demons because that's what it feels like in society. We need to slay some racist <laughs> demons. And so being able to see that happening on screen is cathartic and it's fun. 
And the fact that she is the lead is just, it's so fun. It's not an Oscar Emmy winning probably show, but we don't, not everything. Although I guess Game of Thrones broke that mold where fantasy did start to get awarded, but Game of Thrones had no age, like had no, it did have like very few. I didn't even, I didn't watch that show because it didn't didn't have enough people of color. and, And I didn't appreciate that. And even though I love, I read fantasy, just knowing that a show has dragons, not enough people of color is just, it just made me so angry. (laughs) And of course I talk about the show a lot because that show is a prime example of showrunners who have never worked in television, two white men getting their own show. And so it's a, so I talk about it a lot because it's such an interesting case study of privilege. And, and, but I, I want to see that show, but with people of color and, and I feel like the Irregulars is, is doing something like that. And Netflix is, it's really, it really is more diverse, I think. I'm also watching Young Rock. I love Young Rock. Oh my God, Young Rock's so great. <laughs> I haven't got up yet. I haven't watched a sitcom <laughs> yeah. since, I don't even know when, since a different world. I just have not, because the whole nine, the whole like late 90s and 2000s, like I just started to disassociate from sitcoms. And now I'm back <laughs> because of Young Rock. Because it's so great. I love all the representation. And yeah, so it's heartwarming. It makes you feel good about yourself at the end. I need things to really either be like killing of demons or you're going to laugh and love a family to death. So that's, that's where I am in terms of yeah. my um, consumption. I'm so thankful that more sitcoms are coming out with Asian people. I just, Canada, I also have Kim's Convenience, but Second Gen, I was, they gave me a screening of that and it's online. I'll send you a link, but a Second J-E-N and they have three, three seasons out Two, it's like, uh, Broad City, it's just so much fun. I, I, you'll die laughing. It's so oh, great. I love it. I love yeah. the Canadian show. Actually, I'll, I'll take that back. I think Kim's <laughs> Convenience was what got me back into sitcoms. <laughs> Although I, I still, I was still like, oh, I'm not sure. But, but I really love their their brand of humor. And also, I've met uh, almost all the cast, and they are so lovely. I love Canadian Asians. <laughs> I have to say that Canadian Asians are the the best. There's so many. There's, there's so many coming up. I wish they had the the star power they keep telling me there's no star stardom in canada i'm like we gotta have some more we have simulu who's gonna be Sanchi. once that breaks out he's already a big star but i think he's gonna be even bigger thanks for having me david be sure to tune in next week to listen to my interview with the cast of second gen amanda joy and samantha wong yeah i think i think when you are the only person of color sometimes the onus can be put on you to represent the experiences of everybody from if not every racialized group from your racialized group. And that's unfair. That's not something that's put on white artists. They're not asked to speak for all white people. They're not asked to catch everything that might hurt or offend other white people. So it, it definitely takes some of the burden that is unfairly placed on our shoulders a lot of the time. It helps too with our comedy because it is from our point of view to have other people with the same point of view. So at least we know they're finding it funny. <laughs> yeah. <sometimes> <laughs> We're like, okay, okay, okay. They find it funny too. They get the joke. Once again, thank you for listening. I'm going to do one last plug for our crowdfunding. Please take a moment to take go to strongagentlead.com slash crowdfunding for more information about how we would like to use the money, what will your donations be going towards, and how we want to improve the industry. So once again, go to strongagentlead.com slash crowdfunding. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, David Masami Maria, and this is Strong Asian Lead. Stay safe out there.